All right, now there, there, there's nothing, I would say, more heartbreaking uh, in sports than celebrating too early. You know what that's like? There's probably nothing more heartbreaking than celebrating too early. Maybe you recall uh, Leon Lett. You remember this? Some of you guys are nodding your heads already. Just, there's like a, a, a convulsion going like, no, <laughs> don't bring up Leon Lett. Leon Lett was a big defensive lineman. He was a big guy, and as I was an offense and defensive lineman, I, I relate to that. He, he was playing D-line, and, and he sees a ball on the ground. It's a fumble, and he picks it up. The, the, the lineman's dream. <laughs> and he picks it up, and he's running. He's going to score. He's running into the end zone. And right before he gets into the end zone, he just goes, yeah. And someone came from behind and knocked the, his arm down, and the ball fell down. And the other team got the ball. <laughs> it was this huge blunder. You're like, no, no. Only to, I would say, only to be topped by maybe their division rival, the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. How many of you guys remember Deshaun Jackson catching a wide open pass? Um, and, and he's running with the ball. And again, coming to the end of, of right before the end zone, and he's celebrating. And he's putting his arms out like this, and, and he crosses the goal line. He crosses the goal line, but he lets the ball go before the goal line. <laughs> and gives it to the other team. And you just go, ah, <laughs> if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Personally, I'm not a Dallas Cowboys or a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and so I thought, ha! I don't know if that's like you. Uh, I saw that and I said, it serves you right. <laughs> yes, I am so glad that, to see that, right? Like, you shouldn't be showboating before you actually score. Or, if you're not a football fan, there is a terrific video. Things are flying. There's a terrific video of this bike race. Uh, it, it was not the Tour de France, I don't think, but there was something like it where this biker was, was finishing his race. Something that he'd been working for for months, training his body for for months. And he was by far in the lead. By far, he was going to win this race. And as he's going towards the finish line, when, when he sees that, that crowd of people there, they're all cheering him on, he then takes his hands off of the steering wheel and is like, yes! And he's riding like this, and he's just basking in the glory. Yes, yes, he's going to win it. And then the bike wobbles, <laughs> and he falls down. <laughs> and you're like, no! Unless it's just also funny. You're like, you shouldn't have been doing that. <laughs> and then he gets back up on his bike. He still has time, but he doesn't have enough time to, to speed up until the next guy passes him. And so instead of being first, he gets in second or maybe even third. And so when, 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 when stuff like this happens, we, we just want to laugh at that. We want to say, <laughs> you deserve that, right? Like... Sit down, be humble, is, is really what we want to say to these, these people. But this isn't just isolated with, with, with someone who celebrates their victory too early. Whenever someone does rise to the top, like whenever they're great at what they do, whenever they are the king, like when you almost want them to fall, do you not? Like whenever you see teams do well, whenever you see businesses do well, or, you think, or, or leaders who, who rise to the top, there's something inside of us, and every single one of us just wants them to fall. Like, we, we, just, we just like to, I mean, let, let's be honest. How many of y'all like to see people fall? Is this just me? Okay, I'm cynical. Cool, cool. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think you're scared. I think we're all thinking, yes, sit down, <laughs> be humble, right? 
that jerk needs a slice of humble pie, right? Like, eat it. Just eat your, eat your slice of pie. Yes. And today we're going to watch the, the, a dictator like no other eat that slice of humble pie. A dictator who conquered the world, and even he falls. And so we're going to look at our passage today. We're, we're going to talk about from, from pride to humility by way of humiliation. Say it again. From pride to humility by way of humiliation. And so pride. Now, as we jump back into our fourth track of our Daniel mixtape, we, we don't know how much time has elapsed between um, Nebuchadnezzar throwing Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah into the fiery furnace, but it's probably been some years. It's, it's been a long time because King Nebuchadnezzar is nearing the end of, of his reign. And so some time has elapsed since he saw God do some mighty works. And so like, like me, he, he, he didn't see God move in a long time, and so he just moves on, right? He forgets what God has done. And so uh, th this passage... I'm jumping off, off my page here. <laughs> this passage, I believe, is different in many ways, right? It, it, it's not only um, surprising that, that, that there's, like, there's this gap of time. We don't, we don't know what, what's happened there. There's not a lot of history there. But it's also surprising in another way in that we have a new author to the book of Daniel all of a sudden. We change authors in the midst of this book. Look how it begins here. Nebuchadnezzar is actually writing the passage that we're reading. And you might think, that's, that's a little eerie. I mean, an evil dictator of a foreign land contributes to God's holy word. That, that feels odd. Look at what it says here. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, if we were in this time frame in reading this, we would be shocked by this, saying, he said that? He, 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 he wrote that? What? I'm not sure what's happening here. What, where are we? And that's what this passage is meant to be. It's like a good movie. It's like a teaser, right? It, it, it's shown us the ending of the movie, and you go, how do we get to that point? And so we need to go back to the beginning to make sense of it all. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to the beginning. What's happened here? How did Nebuchadnezzar get to the point where he is praising Yahweh? Well, let's go to the beginning of the story. We, we find ourselves with King Nebuchadnezzar again having nightmares, right? Now, th this passage may be the most appropriate passage for me to preach on the day after Halloween. Because why? Because, well, one, we see there's, there's this nightmare of this towering tree of life. That doesn't sound scary, right? It's just a, it's a tree of life. You think they'll be hopeful, right? It's a tree of life, but everything is going so well, but it's almost like in a, in a scary movie, there's like some ominous music in the background. You're like, oh, gosh, something's going to happen, right? There's this tree of life. It's producing all this fruit. It's all these creatures. Everything's going well. But just like in a scary movie, you're just waiting for the bottom to drop out. You're like, what is going to happen? And then verse 13 comes in, and you see this great watcher, this holy angel who comes down from heaven and says, chop down the tree. 
loft off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. And so like all good dreams, though, that nightmare doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Your dreams, you tend to go back, you're like, that, okay, I don't really know what happened there. Okay, there was a giant tree. Someone said chop it down. And then to make it even weirder, the tree then becomes a man. I don't know if you know it. The, the tree then all of a sudden becomes personified, becomes a man. In verse 16, the man's mind is changed from, from a tree to a man and now to a beast. And then we learn later that this condition that this, this man has is referred to as lycanthropy, which is from the word lichen, which is the word wolf. And thropy or anthropy, you get man. So the day after Halloween, we're preaching on the wolf man, right? <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> this is right here. This is the origin of the werewolf, of wolf man, all in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar is wondering, What's happening here? Just like us. And Daniel tells him what it means. He says in verse 22, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. And Nebuchadnezzar, deep down, he knew what this dream meant. That's why he sought out all these advisors, someone to actually say it for him because he didn't want to believe it. He knew it to be true. He was going to be chopped down. He was going to have his mind transformed. But in spite of the warnings to, to turn from your prideful ways, Nebuchadnezzar, a year later, we see that the king is walking on the rooftop of one of his three palaces. Remember, he had everything. And he says in verse 30, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Before we, before we move on, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 30. Take a look at this. Like, what is the king actually saying here? What is he saying that's wrong? Is not this great Babylon? Yeah, Babylon was great, right? It was by far the superpower in the world. It ruled over the whole earth. I mean, that, that's why the dream has the tree providing shade and fruit for all these animals all over the world. And so Nebuchadnezzar, also, his kingdom was feeding the whole world. Also, he built one of the seven ancient wonders of the world with the hanging gardens of Babylon. And if you've heard of these, but this was to help ease his wife's transition from this lush region that she lived in to this desert land that they were now in. And so what he did was he built this remarkable engineering feat of gardens in the air of hanging gardens. So he, he says, Babylon was great. And he says, I built it by my power. Well, he, he actually wasn't a king that sat back and just watched his minions go. No, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the greatest military leaders of his time. Like he was the one in the chariot. He was the one that was actually toppling other superpowers. He led the charge. And so on one hand, he has reason for pride. He did do it. He conquered the world. He has it all. I mean, modern day, we don't, it's hard for us to think of someone like this. Modern day, maybe you think of more in the business terms, someone like Jeff Bezos or, or Elon Musk. You know, they built their companies to be these huge superpowers, right? They have something to boast about. Do they not? I mean, 
this is an honest question. Is, is pride okay when you actually have reason to be proud of something? When you actually have reason for it? If you worked hard, is it okay to be proud of your achievements? Is this not what Nebuchadnezzar's doing? He's just looking at all that he's accomplished and taking in the fruits of all of his labor. And in one sense, this passage feels so foreign to us because it's hard for us to really connect with, identify with these like giant military political leaders like Nebuchadnezzar, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, or any other leader of a country. That's, that's not something that we really connect with, right? But the root sin inside of Nebuchadnezzar is inside of every single one of us. Pride. Pride. The essence of sin, as William Temple vividly expresses it, is pride. And he says it this way. The essence of sin is, I make myself in a host of ways the center of the universe. I'm always the center of attention. We are just like Nebuchadnezzar. Pride. Pride is like walking into a fun house with all those mirrors and you just, you're like, oh, it's me everywhere. This is great. Hey, everybody, come see how good I look, right? This is, this is pride. We all deep down want credit. We want recognition. We want someone to say, you earned it. Because deep down, we would say, I did earn it. I deserve it. I deserve better. Whether I've had a good day or a bad day, haven't you ever caught yourself saying, well, I've earned a little extra sleep. Oh, I've earned, I've earned that dessert. Even if it was a bad day, I've earned it. If it was a good day, I've earned it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You've earned it, right? I'll, I've earned another sip of that. Like, we, we, what, is, what is that? What's under that? That is pride. Of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm owed something. Pride is this deep sense of oddness that I am owed good things. Now, you might ask, what's so bad about pride? Again, didn't he earn this? Didn't you, didn't you, didn't you earn what you worked for? Okay, enjoying hard work is not the problem. I think that's, that, that, that's, that's clear. Enjoying hard work is not the problem. Enjoying the fruits of your labor is not the problem. The problem is pride robs God of all his due. Pride says, it's all me, none of you. If all you ever say is, I deserve this, then we are taking credit for everything that God has done as well. We are plagiarizing God. We are dependent on God for every breath that we take, are we not? Every move that we make, all of it. Are you, are you really so self-made? Did you choose your race did you choose your gender? Did you choose your, the century that you were born into? No. Like, what if you were a Jewish kid born in Auschwitz in the 1930s? Do you think that would have changed the way you grew up? Determined of who you were? What if you were born in Syria as a refugee in the last 10 years? Don't you think that would have, that would have, have formed you somehow? I mean, did you choose your parents? Did you choose your basic abilities, your talents, or were they given to you? What do you have that you did not receive as a gift? Pride ignores that reality. And I, it's true all the time. When you ignore reality, you go insane. 
And that's what happens here in the story of Daniel. The story of Daniel 4 is the journey from pride to humility by way of humiliation. And so humiliation, Nebuchadnezzar was told, this will happen to you. Despite this scary warning, despite God's servant interpreting the dream and saying very compassionately, you're the tree. If you keep going down this path that you're going, you're going to go insane. But it was too late. There's no stopping this madness. Because in verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar is basking in the glory, celebrating his victories. And he says, for the glory of my majesty, when he's walking on top of these rooftops. And then in verse 31, it says, while the words were still in the king's mouth. God didn't want to hear any more of this dribble. God said, be humble, sit down. And there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, for you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling it shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And so what happened here? Did Nebuchadnezzar actually become a werewolf? No. Worse. He was suffering from a severe mental illness where he thought he was an animal. Imagine a grown man who who one second you knew to be smart, you knew to be cunning, you knew to even be great, to all of a sudden think he's an animal. And at first it may have been funny. You're watching him run around on all fours and you're like, okay, it's a good joke. And then he charges at you and bites your leg. You're like, this is weird. This is sad. There's nothing funny about this. It is sad to watch those you know and love lose their mental faculties. But because Nebuchadnezzar sought to be more than human, God made him less than human. Because he thought himself to be above the human race, he was now not even seen as a part of the human race. He became externally what he was internally. He became bestial. And so all restraints on his subconscious were lifted. And it's just this tragic and pathetic scene where Superman has become subman. Like the one who refused to honor God's glory loses his own glory. He's refusing to share what he has with the poor. And so he becomes poorer than the poor. He becomes outwardly what his heart had always been spiritually, inwardly. It is bestial. I mean, pride defaces your humanity. If you you succeed because of what you did, if you believe that that it's only because of what you did, then, then what happens to those who don't succeed in life? then you don't have any empathy for them. You can't see what, hap- what the difference is there because if all the, all the credit that you've gotten in your life is because of what you've done, then those who don't have, then you look down on. You, you snub your nose at them. You're unable to sympathize with those people. I, I must be better than you. And so no matter whether you're a Christian or not, I think pride is one of these universal seven deadly sins, this universal sin that everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, believes is just to be repulsive. 
You see a prideful person and you are repulsed by it. Pride is repulsive. It is. Pride is repulsive, but humility is redemptive. Say that again. Pride is repulsive, but humility is redemptive. Humiliation does bring humility. It says for seven periods of time. We don't know how long that is, that he was actually uh, in this mental state, thinking himself to be a beast. Seven periods could be seven years, could be seven months, could just be the, the full number seven that it took to be the full number of what it was fully to be for him to be humiliated. But in his humiliation, he was saved from what he was going to be. The humiliation interrupted the path that he was going down. And we hear Nebuchadnezzar praising God for this humiliation because he believed, he believed the prescription was, was worth the cure. Right? 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to his hand or say to him, what have you done? Humility is the great contrast to pride in the Bible. Pride takes credit for everything good in our lives when in fact everything is really just a gift. Pride says I'm due. Humility says it's all a gift. Humility is, is just an entirely different approach to life. Everything is a gift. I, I don't deserve any of these good things that I have. In fact, if, if I got what I deserve, I would be far worse off. Some might say, well, that's a really low self-esteem that you have there. No, we're not saying beat yourself up. We're just saying let's live life thankfully and joy-filled. Everything's a gift. Thank you. It is a very joyful way of seeing the world, of rightly assessing the world, rightly assessing the way things work, that all the things that I've gotten are gifts. And it took God taking away Nebuchadnezzar's mind for him to see this, that he was presuming upon God for everything. And therefore, if, he, if he's now wakened up to this, he's able to say this was a gift. Even, even my mental capacities were a gift. Humility gets rid of this whole concept of pride. And so it's all mercy. Everything I have is all grace. It's all desserts. It's all, it's all undeserved gifts. And so do we see what he learned here? He believed himself to be the center of the world. And all credit and glory comes to him. But it wasn't until he took his eyes off of himself and looked to the heavens. You see, that's the moment that his reason was restored to him. When he looked up to heaven, to God. And here's the essence of humility. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. That's nothing new. But think about that. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Woe is me. I'm terrible. Humility is taking my mind off myself completely. Like, aren't you happy when you receive gifts? Aren't you happy to see that everything is a gift? Humility is this way of life of saying, I'm just thankful. God has given me the next breath. Now, I want you to be careful here. I think the devil tries to, to pull one over us 
when we, when we talk about pride and we say, well, good. I hope the person who's in the parking spot next to me hears this. Like, I don't struggle with pride. I, I actually struggle more with inferiority. And I want to say the very pain that you are feeling right now of being a failure may be owing to the desperateness of your desire to look successful. And so you may have more in common with Nebuchadnezzar than you actually know. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, you know who hates bragging the most? You know who hates bragging and prideful people the most? The proud. The proud hate the, the bragging the most because you think, I deserve to be the center of the stage. I deserve that praise that he's getting, that she is getting. Others' pride gets on your nerves because they're stealing your spotlight. And so you may be just as prideful, but instead of a pompous look at, look at me statements, it's more of a woe is me. And yet your eyes are still fixed inward. It's a counterfeit humility. And so I'm caught up in my weakness rather than my strength. But I'm still focused on myself as I was in my pride. And so true humility looks away from myself to heaven. True humility recognizes not only am I nothing, but that God is everything. And so I have to see both. I deserve all the judgment of God. I deserve the wrath, but I'm also the object of his affection. I need to see both. You can't, you can't just say that all I have is because of my own doing, because that, you know that's not true. It's by grace that I can even think clearly. But you can't say, woe is me, I'm a lowly worm. Christ died to save you, and he didn't die to save an earth eater, right? Christ died because he loves you. And so I don't care what background voices you may be hearing that you're unworthy. That, that is not true. Jesus Christ has made you worthy. You're his masterpiece. I mean, when I, when I come home from, from work and, and my, my kids want to show off their artwork to me, they want to show off all the brush strokes and all the colors they've, that they've, they've used. And I'm like, that is glorious. That is awesome. Do you know that's how God sees you? That you're his masterpiece? That he is, he is so proud of what he's done with you? And yet we don't get to say, wow, I'm awesome. Because he was the author. He was the creator of that masterpiece. He gets the credit, not the creation. And so we are, we are his work of his masterpiece. We are praising the creator. And that creator didn't just create simply one of the seven ancient wonders of the world like Nebuchadnezzar did. He created the world itself out of nothing. And so yet instead of exalting himself, this king voluntarily humbles himself. And even though he was in the very nature of God, this king humbled himself, became a man, took on the form of a servant, washed his disciples' dirty feet, carried his own cross, and he died for you. That's the enormous love God has for his creation. He loves you that deeply. And I don't know if we see how radical this passage is. This passage is, is it, was, it was surprising to me to, to, to see it in a different way. Look how radically different this grace is. Look what God is doing. He sends dreams to Nebuchadnezzar to warn him. He sends Daniel to interpret for him. And even after Nebuchadnezzar ignores all of these warnings and the disaster that's come upon him, we see the Lord is continuing to offer grace to Nebuchadnezzar. What do we do with that? 
I mean, you have a tyrant king of a foreign nation who has murdered families, probably families they know, who has brainwashed countless of your friends, who seems to be just pure evil. But even so, God is still after him. What? Why offer him grace? I mean, even Daniel, who is living the experience, who has more reason to be angry, who has been sinned against, and after telling the king the dream, he says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. A lengthening of his prosperity. How could Daniel want anything good for Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, think about how the colonized Israel would have felt reading this story about Nebuchadnezzar. They probably have a mixture of responses here. I mean, how would you feel? How do you feel when, when God brings the proud low as an act of grace? I mean, we're happy about him bringing people low. We think, yes, they deserve that. But are we just as happy about celebrating grace? Do you really want your enemy's redemption or just their destruction? Part of you might say, he saved him? But that is the point. He saved him. And if God can redeem someone so as self-absorbed and as prideful as Nebuchadnezzar, he can redeem anybody, even me. Wouldn't it feel better just to watch the proud fall and say, sit down, be humble? This is the wild thing about grace, that grace comes for the unworthy. Grace comes for the unlovable. Grace comes for those who we think irredeemable. This is a story about a king with a lesson for kings and presidents just as valid today as it was 25 centuries ago. The proud will fall. But it's also a story about every single one of us. The last line of chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's farewell. We don't get to hear from him ever again. The last line of, of, of chapter 4 is this. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He is able to humble. Let me invite you today to, to take your eyes off of yourself. I know it's hard. Take your eyes off of yourself. Lift them to the heavens and see the grace that is offered to you because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. His grace is radical. You may say, I don't deserve it, but he gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. And what he can do with him, he can do with you. Let's pray.